0: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45
1: up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
2: Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. Hey guys, quick message before we begin. Uh, first of all, uh, my last show of the Canada Land World Tour of Canada is on Friday in Kingston. Come check it out there. But what I really want to ask you is, this Saturday, when the Conservative Party of Canada announces their new leader, do you really want to be alone when that happens? Wouldn't you rather be among friends? This Saturday, our politics show, Canada Land Commons, is doing a live taping slash two-hour drinking game as we learn who the new Conservative leader is. Is going to be you don't have to be a conservative to want to drink about this this saturday night i will be there too it is at the monarch tavern in toronto from 6 to 8 p.m join us for hot takes and cold drinks go to facebook.com slash canadaland Commons for all of the details it will be a good time and this episode of canadaland shortcuts is brought to you by hover when you have a great idea for your blog store or startup you need to give it a great domain name find one now go to hover.com canadaland and get 10 percent off of your first purchase that's Hover.com slash CanadaLand. Joey Coleman, Hamilton's son. Jesse Brown, Torontonian. Independent journalist, raconteur, uh, it's good to have you on Shortcuts, man. I'm glad to be here. We are going to talk about uh, uh, your one of your fellow Hamilton journalists who was arrested while doing his job. We are going to talk about these politically correct snowflakes and their hatred of Lou Reed or something like that and we are going to talk about the Toronto Stars new campaign to build reader trust a campaign called Trust. Joey, again good to have you here. Thank you for having me This episode of Canada Land Shortcuts is brought to you by Andrew Arsenault Lorraine Hutton Sabrina Bauman Seamus McDonald Will O'Neill Solange Castile, Pardeep Longia, and Damien Duick. Damien, why did you decide to be awesome? For me, being a young Canadian, listening to the show is a great way to make sense of Canadian issues and the news media. I'm better for it, and that's worth supporting. And again, guys, this episode is brought to you by Hover. When you get an idea, Joey, you are a creature of the internet, your entire business, your entire existence, all of your work exists on the internet, same as me. You know this, you got to get a domain. Oh, the thepublicrecord.ca. The reason it's called the public record is because the
1: thepublicrecord.ca was available.
2: When you had that idea, I guess that's the, the operative part, is that when you had that idea and got the domain, it was still there. Is your idea still there? If it's not there under .ca, Hover.com has some options for you, 400 of them in fact. Not just .com and .net, but .design, .tech, .pizza, .ninja, .horse, Joey, the public record dot horse, is that still open? Or is, is somebody going to go and, and squat on that until your empire extends and you need the dot horse suffix?
1: Uh, I'm going to try to
2: register it before this airs. Otherwise, yeah, Ezra Levant may take it. I just cost you a little bit of money. Okay. Once you find your domain, use Hover Connect to set up your domain automatically in just a few clicks. No more digging through help articles to figure out how to get your domain working. No more annoying upselling where they try to sell you five different products you don't need. Hover is just about getting you domains and email. So go to hover.com slash Canada land, get your 10% off of your first purchase. Once again, hover.com slash Canada land, 10% off. Check it out. with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca/canadaland to claim this offer. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. We hear a lot about the opioid crisis, we talk a lot about the mental health crisis. These are serious problems. These problems affect us all. They've affected my life and my community. They're not intractable problems. I don't know what's going to solve them on a policy level, but day-to-day helping people, that's what CAMH does. They do it on the ground when people need help, and they do it through research. The team at CAMH gave our team a tour of their facilities, and we were really just blown away by the incredible, heroic work that they're doing every day. They treat everyone with dignity, and their research is seeking and finding real solutions for everyone around the world. Help Change Mental Health Care Care. Forever, Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at CAMH.ca slash Canada Land to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. Okay, Joey, uh, y- y- you must have seen the story It was in The Guardian. It was international news.
1: Yes, the latest student union outrage story.
2: Yeah, we have to keep a close eye on the student union Facebook postings of the world. This was a posting since removed from the University of Guelph's Facebook page where they apologized for playing Lou Reed's Walk on the Wild Side because it came to their attention after they had played it in some public setting that this was a transphobic song. The Guardian picked this story up. It went global and people were outraged at the pc thuggery of these oversensitive snowflakes who don't understand that Lou Reed was in fact an early champion for trans rights or and just an artist who was interested in the lives and and the humanity of all sorts of different people who were outcasts and and in many ways he was one himself and again I'm a sucker like I do this for a living but when I first read that story I was like come on They totally misunderstand that song. That's ridiculous. Shut the fuck up. That anger, that knee-jerk thing, I experienced that for a second. And then I started to wonder, like, why is The Guardian covering the Facebook page of the University of Guelph student group? So I cut my teeth covering student politics.
1: And the student union outrage stories always generate a lot of traffic. People get talking about them. They love the idea of those dumb university students, that sort of oxymoron of it. And so it's easy traffic. I mean, I remember that I covered native education issues. I was covering a First Nations Technical Institute that was being cut by the federal government because it was education and being cut by the province because it was native. And they were having a jurisdictional battle. So I went and covered this. Same day, there was an outrageous statement by a student politician at Carleton University. And you imagine which actually made my publication money on advertising clicks. I think that we're seeing a lot of attention on these issues, because our dialogue in society has become so polarized. And we're no longer dealing with substantive issues, we're dealing with these very symbolic battles about speech and about what do we say. And, you know, student unions are under such scrutiny in the internet age, that, you know, student politicians, the mistakes that they make are now amplified on social media. And you know, it, for The Guardian, it's just a free click story. For those of us who are talking about it, it, gets to a bigger concern that we're having. I do a radio show with the campus radio station, and it's something that I've really noticed in the last 10 years is that everybody's afraid of saying something that offends that we no longer actually learn. Because part of learning, for especially for young people, is doing something and expressing something in a way that's not necessarily the way that somebody outside of university will. And, you know, then we, you know, this term snowflake is used. And I think that that's a bigger issue, but, you know, in terms of the guardian covering it, I think it's just about clicks.
2: I guess, man, but you know, I, I, I think that you're right. That people like these stories and they pop up all the time. You know, you just mentioned one, there was one in the national post that was picked up from the Washington post. And this is what we always see is these stories about, Oh, politically correct Canada and their ridiculous campuses that get reported on by the foreign press, and then those stories run in the National Post. Like the National Post ran this Washington Post story: University of Ottawa yoga class canceled over oppression, and it actually had an Indian teacher that somehow yoga was culturally insensitive because it was appropriating. And 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 wouldn't you know it, the teacher turns out to be Indian after all. There was another one about a university that was trying to get rid of all the classics, all of the great dead white males, and and replace philosophy with uh, you know African philosophy because they were such you know and and and. You You read between the lines, and it was actually from a university that specialized in African and Asian studies. Like, it's not simply, I would argue, about those clicks, because those clicks are just a symptom of something else, right? The clicks, why do people respond to those stories? Why do they love them so much? It's confirmation bias. It's cherry-picking the story that is going to affirm your conception that political correctness has run amok and that the world is just like an unsafe place. I mean, you talked about people are afraid of saying things for fear of offending. I think that's true. People are afraid, and maybe, like in many cases, people should be a little bit concerned about offending people, but the way that gets interpreted is that university campuses are on are on free speech lockdown because of identity politics. I'm more afraid of, for some weird reason, something being taken out of context and plastered in the international press because it, it's, it suits somebody's ideological agenda. Like, let's be clear... The Guardian does not do day in and day out coverage of the University of Guelph's student discourse. Okay, it's only when they find something like how minutely do you have to be cherry picking to seek out that tiny little cherry from the University of Guelph that confirms your idea that university campuses are uh, are not safe for for ideas.
1: Just to go to Guelph, because I used to go up there a lot. It's a place where there's a lot of great discourse. It's definitely not a place that I ever was worried about going to and somebody taking something I said out of context uh, and trying to twist it. But again, we get back to, you know, I'm glad that I was doing my student politics before social media because there were a lot of things I expressed poorly that definitely would be all over the Internet today.
2: I mean, that's why I think you see these things coming out of universities, not because student politics are so radicalized, but because you've got young people who are getting their first taste of political discourse and they're starting to care about things and they might lack context or the way that we get uh, you know, indignant about things when we first get politicized. Universities have to be a safe space to be that kind of an idiot too. But the idea, like when you get down to the actual power dynamics of have they made the university campuses, like the whole Jordan Peterson thing, like it assumes that university campuses are this like Hostile environment where he was facing this daily scrutiny over whether what pronouns he used was really of a lot of concern, and he was being—it's not true. Like you really have to be on like a mission to find these microaggressions. The microaggressions are actually being sought by you know by by the other side of this, who are who are looking to kind of buttress their argument, and it's the same argument for like thirty years now. You know that uh, free speech is under attack. And the campus is the beachhead for that, and I don't—I just don't think there's an ounce of truth to it. But you're right—you know, the way that this filters down on the retail level with the press is that these stories will always play, and they'll play big. Yes. Okay, I want to talk, Joey, about this incident last week here in Hamilton. Can you give us a quick summary? So
1: uh, last Tuesday evening, there was a very tragic uh, motor vehicle collision. A uh, ten-year-old girl was struck by a van. Uh, She unfortunately died of her injuries. Freelancers and mainstream media uh, were on scene, set up near a gas station to film the scene. The tragedy had occurred, so you're now at the point where police are now starting their investigation. You get the crime tape footage, and uh, an officer arrested two journalists on scene. He arrested a freelancer, David Ritchie, and a global television cameraman, Jeremy Cohn. So the officer has charged, the Hamilton Police Service has charged the freelancer. They let the global television cameraman go. The freelancer has been charged with obstruction and resisting arrest. Uh huh. To give people a bit of context that will help them understand where it was at in Hamilton at that time, we had had a major highway closed for an individual who was... Killed on the highway. It's a coroner's investigation, and this resulted in traffic gridlock throughout a large part of the city. This collision occurred on a street that people used to cut through during gridlock, and very stressful scene. David Ritchie uh, left his camera in the field behind the gas station. Quickly went to his vehicle, which was only a couple feet away, to grab batteries. The officer, Ritchie says, the officer took his camera, and that Ritchie asked him why he had taken the camera. The confrontation went from there. The officer then arrested David Ritchie, fairly forcefully took him to the ground, and then the officer shortly after approached Jeremy, the global cameraman, and Jeremy's video shows the officer saying, I told you to get away from here, shows Jeremy a significant distance back from the yellow tape, and then you see the camera jostling. You hear Jeremy, hey, don't touch me, don't touch me. The officer goes, you're under arrest. A spectator, still cameraman, has a photo of the officer with Jeremy on the ground, the officer's knee into Jeremy's back. Andrew Collins, who's another freelancer, has video of the officer making the arrest. He's a bit in the officer's face, and there's back and forth between the two of them. So the uh, officer arrested Jeremy from Global Second. He released Jeremy fairly soon. Jeremy was wearing a Global TV jacket. But kept the freelancer, David Ritchie, who doesn't have the same legal resources in custody. Canadian Journalist for Free Expression got involved. The staff sergeant then went to the scene. Staff sergeant, within about 15 minutes of getting on scene, released David Ritchie. David's expected to uh, appear in court on June 15th to face the charges. The Hamilton police are not commenting. They're not explaining themselves. They're not explaining why they arrested a journalist, saying that the matter's before the courts. But I'll note something, and this is common to police forces across the country. They don't do that. Whenever they have a good story to tell, whenever they want to brag about an arrest, you've seen the police show and tell all the weapons, money, all that. They never say, "Oh, the matter's before the court. We can't give you the story of all the good work we've done." They only use that excuse if it's before the court when they don't want to explain themselves. What you're
2: suggesting that if, in fact, this freelancer had acted improperly, and broken the law, the cops would have been quick to have uh, explained that. Absolutely. So, so, I mean, okay, look, I want to back up a little bit, because the cops did release a statement. The Hamilton police released a statement, and what they said in the statement was, in addition to that they're not going to talk about the specifics about the arrest and the charges, they went on at some length about how horrible this tragedy was. And, of course, the death of this child, it was a horrible tragedy. And there was an inference there, like, we have this arrest of a journalist who was trying to film And we have this horrible tragedy where a child was killed. And that's all that the public needed. And if you look at the responses in social media, there were a couple of people who were journalists saying, this is an absolute affront that this guy was just doing his job and got arrested. And then you had a lot of people saying, no, you're a parasite. There's no room for a camera on a scene like that. This is awful. I'm glad they arrested him. I think that the context that we need for this is how common is it at the scene of a collision, of an accident, of a death. Like, what is the standard operating procedure and the relationship between cops and journalists, so, regardless of how awful the tragedy is? So in
1: is? Hamilton, generally, um, so David Ritchie and I end up at scenes quite often, and often we're there very early. In my case, it's often in the de- area where I live, the downtown area, people quickly text me whenever something occurs. And generally the protocol is, and this is gets to part of the reason why you saw a lot of first responders speaking out in support of Dave Ritchie on social media, is Dave and I are the type of people that we get to see and we keep our distance right away because we understand that there's an investigation to occur and there's no value in in having photos of a victim, the you sometimes will get a photo of them loading a stretcher on, but you can't see the victim. Dave and I are the type that we both understand very clearly that we don't want to be putting out on social media identifying details about somebody that's been involved in a collision and their family finds out that way instead of through the proper protocol. So the
2: idea that this guy was sticking his camera at the body of a child or somebody who was going to the hospital, invading privacy, getting in the way of first responders, I think that people, you know, they saw that movie Nightcrawler and they think like this is just the lowest job that you're going and you're feeding off of human misery in that way. You weren't there at this particular accident. But knowing Dave Ritchie, is that reputation and is that kind of characterization of a slimy uh, Nightcrawler uh, accident scene journalist consistent with, with this Absolutely guy Absolutely know? not.
1: Dave is uh, somebody that I respect immensely. Uh, I've seen him at scenes. You know, there's been times where Dave and I are at a scene. And, you know, the reason you're there is you film the scene, but you also want to get a sense of what happened. Are police doing their job well? What are the wider issues? Is there a policy issue that needs to be addressed? And uh, you know, there's been a couple of times where Dave and I are at a scene and I can remember specifically and very vividly a altercation that resulted in a stabbing in a nightclub district. And it was late at night, so lighting was poor. And we were about a block and a half away because we were going around a block to get a different angle. And we noticed evidence on the ground. Mm -hmm. And right away, we stopped. We took note of where we were, how we got there. I stayed where I was to make sure nobody else would walk into the scene. And Dave went back and informed the officer, hey, uh, the scene's over here as well. And in Hamilton, there's generally a protocol for these types of things. It's an unwritten protocol of the media will set up further away, but you know, at a gas station, which is what you saw here. And you set the cameras, the media officer comes out, he stands in front of the cameras, he gives the discussion of what occurred, and then he talks about the importance of people paying attention while driving, you know, and trying to prevent future tragedies.
2: So, you know, the first responders do their jobs. You do your job on the scene of an accident like this. Is there tension usually? Uh, Very rarely. And I say that for officers who are used to
1: interacting with the media in the more urban areas of the city, they know Dave, they know why. you know, there's an understanding that they know we're not going to do anything inappropriate. And so they generally leave us be. And there's even some, you know, banter of, you know, how are things with your family? How are things with your training? What I've seen from the videos, you have an officer who's in a more rural area, so he's not used to working with the media. Um, may not actually know who the media people are. So, you know...
2: Well, the officer is a Hamilton police officer, but he's not...
1: He's not in the urban area. He's more in the rural area. Uh So Hamilton's a large city. We We have huge areas of farms. So this was more of a rural area. It was also an extremely difficult night. The police in the area were understaffed because of the traffic gridlock caused by the other incident. It was almost impossible to get police vehicles into that area of the city because of the amount of gridlock. And, you know, you've got the death of a girl who, you know, we cannot at all forget that. It
2: yeah, was- the, 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 the cop is dealing with this try- and trying to, trying to rush people who need medical attention and the traffic situation. You were telling me earlier about how difficult and stressful that is. I think that people like start to make assumptions about the journalist maybe overstepping the boundaries. I guess we can't say definitively, but you know, our editor, Jaron Kerr, one of our editors, uh, he reported on this. There's a videotape of part of what happened. There's just no reason to believe that Dave was was doing any of that. There's just nobody has said that. The cops haven't said that. Nobody else who was on the scene has said that.
1: Yeah. And uh, you know, the sense that I'm getting from speaking to people um, who are police officers but can't speak on the record, of course, and this gets to the relationships great on the ground is that basically what we appear to have had is a momentary incident that has turned into a dysfunctional incident where you have charges. And this is one of the things that I find very difficult with the Hamilton Police Service. It's on the front line. And on the individual level, they're great individuals and the relationship is very good on an individual one-on-one level. But between the media and the institution, it's horrible. And the institution's dysfunctional. You have a dysfunctional police board.
2: And you and you've had your altercations as a journalist with that police board. Yeah, was we, we, we should say. Okay, look, we're working with an editorial hypothesis here, and that hypothesis is that the cop is having a really bad night, and he may be overstepped. If that's the case, I have a couple questions, and I guess we can only speculate. That's understandable as a human error that that you know he he blew his top and, and arrested a journalist where he shouldn't have. Why don't you just release the guy then? Why why go through with the charges and? What do you make of the fact that the other journalist who was arrested was from a big news organization and that guy wasn't charged? He was let go. What do you make of that?
1: I'm not surprised.
2: I mean, that's the part that really stuck out to me is that we're back to this question of who's a real journalist and who isn't and that the, the cops respect for a journalist doing their job varies. And again, I, I don't have the full details of if one of these guys behaved differently than the other. But I mean, there's just no we've been reporting this. You've been looking at this. Nobody has said that.
1: Yeah, uh, that's it. I mean, this is – we're getting back to this is very Hamilton thing of you're not a real journalist, you're this, and this targeting and bullying that occurs at an institutional level. And this really comes down to – as a Hamiltonian, I'm embarrassed that once again – one of our political institutions is making national headlines for what was a human error that's been compounded by the institution failing to deal with it quickly and effectively. This is a waste of the court's time, a waste of the Crown's time. And, you know, it's one of those things where if a human error occurs, it happens, you deal with it. And that's not to let the officer off with arresting a journalist inappropriately, but it can be dealt with through informal internal discipline. But now that we're going through the court process, we've turned it into a national story. Yeah. And it's it's absolutely concerning. And it's concerning for journalists across the country that this is happening because there's been other incidents. Uh, Justin Blake comes to mind.
2: Justin Blake. Yeah. Right. C- covering Muskrat Falls and, and then the Ben McCo case, which might be going to the Supreme Court. Uh, you know, this is the surveillance cases in Montreal. They're all different stories in different places. But.
1: They're noting a trend of the state continuing to crack down on journalism. And on
2: independent journalists and journalists who are with, with uh, outside of the legacy media organizations. I'm like, I think each of these cases, it's true. Yes. While we're talking about this, just to broaden this a little bit, I know that you wanted to talk a little bit about how we report on, on accidents.
1: Yeah, and uh, even that choice of word, accident, I use the term collision, because accident implies that, oh, geez, it happened. There's not really anything we can do about it. Collision, you know, indicates more accurately what occurred, and it gives that, is there something to research? Is there something to fix? And Matt Pinder, he wrote a great blog post. He's a Torontonian graduate of McMaster University, and he wrote a great piece where he, he looked at how journalists cover collisions, accidents. And he noted that whenever a pedestrian is struck by a vehicle, it's person hit by car, person hit by truck.
2: Uh-huh. But if, again, accident, act of God almost. Yeah. So it's it.
1: like the truck hit the person. There, The truck was in control of it, not the driver that was operating the vehicle. Yeah. And then, you know, whenever a bicycle is in a collision, it's cyclist hits. So the person is responsible when they're on a bicycle Whereas they're not responsible where they're in a vehicle,
2: wow, that's that's such that's so telling. that's such a little bit of unconscious bias. Of course, I would probably write the story like that. like you just hear that so many times that it is yeah. just uh, yeah. it becomes like news language news and trope, I never you know? thought about it that way. And I think you know part of uh,
1: it is that we as journalists moving forward, if we're going to have greater value to the public, especially as technologies get better that people can self report what's happening. A person can say a car hit a pole at King and James, which is the main intersection. And a journalist can say, yeah, police say this. But where we can really add value and where we're going to have to go as we start to get reader and we have to convince people of our value to them when they put their money out, is we need to start looking at things deeper and looking at, well, what causes a collision? What are the things that can change? Because yes, at times accidents will occur. But most collisions I've been to are preventable. And, you know, it's this thing of the airline industry never completes a report. and says the plane crashed. It was an accident. It could happen again. They look at everything and they figure out how do we fix the systems to prevent the human
2: error? Well, that, that's a good a good way of looking at this whole thing, because when we look at our cases of journalists under fire, journalists getting arrested, the journalist least likely to garner public sympathy is the one who's like trying to get footage of a traffic collision. And I think that, that the public looks at that as just like the lowest value, like, why do I need you to report on, you know, they're just going to happen every day. They're awful. I don't want to think about it. I don't want to think about the fact that that could happen to me at any point in time. What is the value of this? And reframing the coverage itself to say, well, no, the, the reason why this needs to be reported on is not just so that you can salaciously like, you know, rubberneck at a horrible tragedy or even just so you get traffic information, but because these are preventable collisions. And if we stop reporting on them, we're going to stop actually looking for well, ways to prevent Well, you know, in
1: them. Hamilton, I cannot get collision data from the city or from the police. So police collect the data and give it to the city. Police say you can't get the data from us because we don't hold the data. The city says you can't get the data from us because it belongs to the police. I rely so heavily upon being able to call up Dave Ritchie and say, hey, that collision that occurred in East Hamilton, you were there. What did it look like? Did it look to be high speed? Because I get a lot of people that after a collision, they'll reach out to me, the public by email and say, I want 30 kilometers an hour on my street. I want traffic calming. Everybody wants traffic calming on their street. But not on other streets. But that gives me the ability, and I've done this dozens of times to call Dave and say, you know, what did you see on scene? What did it look like? And what are the public policy implications? So, absolutely. And you know, this is one of those things of the mainstream media uh, rely on Dave to tell them what's happening on scenes. Rely on Dave to fill the pages of their newspapers to fill their websites. But they can easily let go of a freelancer and just disown and say, we have no relationship. We were just buying off them. And, you know, police have taken, I think, advantage of that by releasing the global reporter and not the freelancer. And, you know, I've I've been actually quite disappointed to have not seen more in Hamilton, more of the mainstream media speaking out on this and having the freelancers back. Because I can tell you that they're on Monday morning, if you look at Hamilton Media almost every monday morning it's dave Ritchie reporting that they've bought to fill their publications on monday morning because they're not staffing on the weekend
2: no they'll 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 pay him and they'll run his journalism but will they protect him when he is arrested and charged for doing his job joey now is the time when i would like us to note duly things that need to be duly noted may i go first
1: you may you're the host
2: cool (laughs) um Okay, so we are speaking, you know, in in, in the days after the Manchester bombing. And of course, this is the biggest news in the world. It is not really a story with much of a Canadian connection. And what we do here is talk about Canadian news. But Canadians had takes on this. And the worst take that I want to duly note was Faith Goldie's take from The Rebel. And my God, she asked, what the hell were kids doing at an Ariana Grande concert? Parents, would you bring your kids to such a show? If so, what about a strip club? Asking seriously. She's asking seriously. And I'm not bringing this up to strike a sanctimonious pose of like just how how awful that is to shame the parents who are grieving the deaths of their children and judge them for their lack of parental judgment and allowing their kids to go to a sexy concert. I'm really just beside myself with the dark places that ideology can take you. What's that quote? I'm going to mangle it now that, that, you know, like thinking is is when you have ideas, but ideology is when ideas have you. You ever heard heard that one? Yeah. Something like that. I'm sorry to whoever actually said that properly. But like, I understand that Faith Goldie believes that she is involved in a crusade for the, the protection of Western civilization itself for God, that she feels that she is part of a cause that is trying to protect the world not only from radical Islamism, but from Islam itself and from corruption and bad morals and anti-Christian. Like, that is her framework. But whatever path that she's on has taken her to this place where she is shaming grieving parents. You know, I've
1: seen some of the rebel coverage of this and... I'm beside myself as somebody that went to university out on the prairie when Ezra was editing the Western Standard, and the Western Standard had some very interesting, insightful, thoughtful articles. I remember reading on paper to where he is say, I mean, this is, the rebel has become to us a parody of itself, a danger, it's not even a parody because it's not funny, it's just, but, you know, there's money to be made selling this bullshit. To people who are longing for a time that they thought was simpler, better, and more secure, and you know, we're seeing this in so many ways of the insecurities and the turmoil of society is being exploited by demagogues. And you know, I honestly, uh, I I've given up being surprised in the rebel. That's really all I can say is like they have turned into performance art that is making them money. And
2: I don't even know if they necessarily believe what they're saying anymore. I think you have to. To go to this place, you have to believe it 100%. And I think that that makes them even more dangerous. They are indeed thriving. They're doing incredibly well. I heard that they employ 48 people at this point, okay? And they're opening up these bureaus. I don't know what that means. There's a lot that's unknown. They're not very transparent about their funding. But I I don't try to take anything away from the fact that they've connected with a lot of people. And I don't try to suggest that they don't believe what they say. And I just think that makes them more dangerous. And you know what? I'm duly noting this. Again, I'm not trying to get on a high horse here about this. I was just shocked and appalled by this, and I feel like to just ignore the fact that that this was said is not the option that I want to take. But moreover, I don't have the same sense of self-importance about what I'm doing. I don't think I'm saving civilization or anything, right? But but I I can get a pretty good head of steam about what I'm doing sometimes. I can feel that I'm on the right side. I get that way a lot. And that can take you to some places where like sometimes I catch myself, oh, why am I being so mean to this person? If I ever get close, please, please, somebody slap me. If I ever get close to a place where I'm putting this kind of stuff well, out there. Well, you know,
1: I think the other thing that I have to think about a lot as a local journalist is there are people that are reading The Rebel in my area. I know a few that, you know, send me rebel stuff on a regular basis of, You're, you are know, covering this up, Joey. And, you know, I we have to look at where people are coming from. And there's a lot of people hurting out there. There's a lot of people that have been left behind by society. And they're looking for easy narratives and you know the rebel is shoveling duly note it.
2: Joey, what do you have? So,
1: a blog post by John L. Russell. He's the former editor in chief of the News and Observer. It's a newspaper, a daily, large daily in Greensboro, North Carolina. He's now a retired. He's a journalism prof. And he wrote a post which uh, was, you know, saying, where is the local investigative journal? You know, noting that the New York Times and the Washington Post are getting great success in bringing in paid subscribers, getting to that new business model with all the investigative journalism they're doing with the Trump administration. And he's bemoaning the fact that he doesn't see that in his local publications. He sees a lot of crime, traffic, and news release type content. So he wrote a blog post on it what was also interesting was to see the defensive response of local newspaper reporters of these are the investigations we've done in the last couple months. reason I'm noting this is because uh, it, it touches on local. There's definitely a need for us to get into more local investigative reporting. The challenge is, of course, that we have to have content every day. But also, you know, he's writing a very insightful blog. Here's a guy who's been in the traditional news setting, has an editor in chief who's talking about how we go. And yeah, it's easier to do on the outside than on the inside, but duly noted.
2: Duly noted. Okay, Joey. Finally, I want to talk about. I want to talk about trust. Proper noun. Trust. TM. Uh, trust is the new campaign that the Toronto Star has launched. Here's how they put it. Have you ever wondered what steps Toronto Star journalists take to verify the facts that they report, or how we choose stories for the front page? Who decides to publish certain photos over others? These are the kinds of questions Star reporters will be tackling soon in an effort to make the process of the journalism we do here more transparent. The Star has convened a trust committee made up of employees from different departments. To be clear, the mandate of this series is not to address complaints about our coverage. I think there's a contradiction here. I think that the Toronto Star is absolutely reading the temperature right that there is a crisis of credibility, that people feel alienated from the news that they read, they are very suspicious of journalists, they don't know what goes into a news story. The more we can have people be media literate, news stories are written in weird ways and you don't understand how sourcing works and making this clear is a great idea and, and I think that's understood throughout the field. However, the- The trust committee. The trust committee, the trust series, which won't, explicitly won't deal with complaints about their coverage, I believe is maybe the wrong tack to take. And I say this as a journalist who asks questions and who the transparency of the Toronto Star has been a live issue for us. When Desmond Cole said that John Hendrick told him to stop writing about race so much, did John Hendrick return our phone calls? No. When the Toronto Star was in the midst of their HPV coverage crisis, where they told people that they could get horrible diseases or imply that you could die if you were to get the HPV vaccine, what was the transparency like there around the Ravina Allock tragedy? How responsive was the Toronto Star? How transparent was the Toronto Star around that? When we finally saw the Rob Ford video and we saw that he had been misquoted in the Toronto Star and Kevin Donovan said, well, nope, that's what I thought he said. That's what it, that's what it sounds like he said to me how transparent and accountable you can't have a discussion about trust and transparency without being transparent and being transparent isn't just like we choose to show you things that's not transparency and frankly what i've learned is that the interesting part is where journalists have controversies amongst themselves about what to or where they're accountable and actually admit to fault where they actually own up to their mistakes that's the part that is actually interesting and it's not just a pr campaign for your trustworthiness. So this will be boring more than anything. People won't pay much attention to it, but I feel like it's this, it's a lame bandit. You
1: know, it's one of those things that they're definitely reading the temperature, right? But creating a committee, you've got to create a culture. And I i can tell you that it's hard to be human. Um, and it's hard to admit when you're wrong, and yeah. thankfully I've been wrong enough times that I've had to admit it. i am wrong enough times that each time I fall on the sword, it just goes into the old wound, so it doesn't hurt as much. You know, it doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't tear the skin. <laughs>
2: oh, it still hurts, man. I, I I hate it. I hate I hate issuing corrections. I hate admitting that I'm wrong, but it's never as bad as you fear it's going to be. I mean, because you work so hard to get it right that having to actually just swallow it and eat it and say I got that wrong, and then and then you know, there's always bullies who are like take that one little technical error and impugn your whole thing based on it. But it always hurts less than you think it's going to hurt. You know, I I always tell a story.
1: I can't remember the story off the top of my head right now, but it ended with I did a huge correction and I explained. I made an error and I explained how I made the error, the work I put in, where I misread, and I misread a line in a report. And then at the end, I said, so what am I going to do to prevent this error? And I said, Well, the answer is be more careful. Unfortunately, be more careful with humans does not work. And I said, there's a chance I'll make this mistake again, and I will have to apologize again, but I'm sure humbled right now, and this feeling means I'm probably not going to do it for a very long time. And the amount of people that came up to me on the street and said, you know, I actually appreciate you went through the process, and then you admit it. You screwed up, and you didn't promise me you weren't going to screw up again. You promised you would be transparent when you, you know, the challenge we have is that we've created these institutions of these newspapers that are infallible. So even here, when she says we're not going to address complaints, I feel complaints are the best opportunity to address it because you have a direct read of what what the concern is that you need to address. I fear what we're looking at is that this truth committee is going to have a whiteboard and come up with what are all the things you think people are concerned about outside of this building, write about it. And it'll be boring,
2: and exactly that—they're not going to address the concerns outside the building. Is it an accident or a collision? I—I I, I think maybe we have accidents. Do we have collisions too? Collisions happen. Preventable collisions happen. But you know, they're, they're, this is a human business. It's not a perfect science. So, like, you know, the posture of the newspaper of, of the record of truth—that's got to go if we're going to get anywhere. And I think that that's—that's that's a cultural shift. It's a hard one for a newspaper to make. Yes, Joey. Thank you. If this is your Canada Land shortcuts, I hope you enjoyed it. You can email me anytime at, at com. I read what you send me, and I respond when I can. And we're on Twitter at Canada Land. Joy? I'm on Twitter at Joey Coleman all hours of the
1: night. And uh, thepublicrecord.ca is the news website I run.
2: Check out what this guy does. Our website is canadalandshow.com, and our crowdfunding site is patreon.com slash canadaland. Special thanks to CFMU and Hamilton for letting us use their studio this morning. I make this show with Russell Gregg and Ali Graham. If you like what we do, please support us. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. Planning for your
0: next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen,